Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about education and learning. I'm Jenny Mathiasen, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. And today we have a special guest host, Jane Henderson. Jane, would you like to present yourself and what you do? Hi, I'm Jane Henderson and I teach conservation in Cardiff. Yes, you do. (laughs) Bit of a conservation mini celebrity, I would argue. We're quite excited to have you on the show, I have to say. It's it's a bit exciting for us. (laughs) Yes. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's a Sunday Sunday morning when we record this and... uh, uh, we're all in various states of tiredness, but it'll be absolutely awesome to talk about uh, learning and education and all that stuff. So, so that is our subject for today, learning and education, which is why, of course, we've got Jane. Yes, because she's uh, the expert on learning <laughs> and education. <laughs> no pressure, Jane. No, no, it's fine. Uh, so I was thinking that we could maybe start by talking a bit about uh, the various kinds of ways that you can become a conservator, basically. And for me, that's normally, hey, you go to university. Uh, that's usually how that starts, uh, especially, well, I think, you know, especially in the UK, I feel like. I was going to say, not inevitably, because Icon obviously has its sort of pathways idea. This is I'm trying true. To Do you know more Desperately about to find out what it's called, because <laughs> I can't remember. That's but they, they basically have a have a thing which shows that there are several pathways to becoming ultimately an accredited conservator, and they don't all involve going and doing a master's in conservation. It's not like I you have to lot, do a master's to begin with. No, or I even a BA. I think a lot depends what area you want to work in, because yeah. if you want to be an industrial conservator, then having an engineering background might be more relevant than, than some of the other routes in. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. And something I actually love about conservators in general is that we do come from very different backgrounds because mm. something I really liked in Cardiff was that regardless of whether it was the undergrad or the postgrad course, there were people of different ages. So we had a good age range. So yeah, you can tell that I went to Cardiff, by the way. Hi. Um, <laughs> so um, I really like that because it showed that people come to conservation at different points in life. They may have had previous careers. And it's something that I really love talking to people about where it's like, hey, how did you get started? What was your previous life? I I love that. Uh, There tends to be quite a lot of archaeologists. (laughs) So our sort of end point or our our route depends quite a lot, do you think, maybe on our goals towards conservation then? If we're general objects conservation or if we just go in wanting to be conservators, we're more likely to pick a degree and go for it and if we want to be a specific type of conservator say industrial or textiles or paintings we're more likely to find a set kind of either apprenticeship or I or different know. route what do you think mm-hmm. i think almost all conservators are a tiny bit odd <laughs> and <laughs> we all find our own way and i think that's the nice thing about the way icon has defined the profession rather than you follow this particular form and route. It's a more confident thing that we know what a conservator is. And we, you know, we look at people who come different ways to achieve that as long as they've got the, the full package in the end. Oh, that's an interesting one. I, You know, I hadn't really thought of it. But yeah, I suppose we define the end product more than we do the, the path there, which is a really interesting one. But I suppose that's also because, do you think that's because we're also a relatively young profession? So people have already come from many different paths. Well, I think that's part of it. I think there's a different approach in different countries. So I think in parts of Europe, that's not such a familiar way of doing things. Mm. But I I think it's to do with an understanding of the professional and what the nature of the profession is and the fact that I suppose we've all seen people who bring a lot to conservation from different routes and it's about respecting that, maybe. Oh, no, I quite like that. I I do quite like that because I think... One of our great strengths as a profession is that we are very diverse like that. I mean, I know that we all talk about diversity or us all being white middle-aged women, which we're not all, but, you know, the stereotypical kind of conservator. But, I mean, okay, so thinking about some of the conservators who are my friends, they've been graphic illustrators, they've been archaeologists, they've been flight stewardesses, they've been biochemist, engineer. Basically, they've had very different lives, some of them. Mm. I mean, and chemists. We have quite a lot of chemists, yes, don't we? That is true. I and think, that's extremely useful. I think the diversity that you get of backgrounds is probably also a result of conservation's obscurity 
as a subject. So I'm I'm always impressed by people who do it as their first undergraduate degree because <laughs> when I was at the point of thinking about degrees and so on, I wasn't even aware that conservation was a thing, um, and I was very much kind of thinking in terms of the sorts of traditional subjects, if you like, um, the subjects that you do at school, but also kind of things like law, medicine, whatever. I didn't know you could do degrees in conservation. I didn't know. I, I didn't know how no, people got to be conservators and so on. And so lots of people do come to it later in life just because they hadn't heard about it earlier in life. Also, um, and um, so I think that's why you get so many people who have done completely different things beforehand. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Also, for me, I, I did know uh, because I, I was informed in my late teens that conservation was a thing and I was thrilled. Uh, there was ba- I was doing a placement, a work placement at a museum, just doing kind of general behind the scenes stuff. And a woman came up to me in a lab coat and said, you like science and history, don't you? Why don't you become a conservator? And I said, what on <laughs> earth is that? So that sounds to me like the perfect example of outreach in conservation. Yeah. yeah right kind of, there is yeah. that little anecdote was perfect. Yeah, yeah because... <laughs> If we're not, you know, if you think I want to work in museums, I'll be a curator. Why do people not say I want to work in museums? I want to be a conservator. Maybe that's because it's the the curators that shout about it more. Well, yeah, and the, and it's the, the curators kind of... who get interviewed in in media and stuff like that. All right, so we're not that visible yet. I think we're really improving on that. But um... I think I think we uh, women in STEM is a really great example yeah. of way in because women to science, engineering, you know, technical subjects conservation is such a brilliant route too for exactly what you said a girls who like science girls who like history you know how many options are there that they feel that they could be represent you know that they would fit in yeah i mean i didn't even know that venn diagram existed like you can do history and science holy you know <laughs> you know insert thing there i'm just trying not to censor the episode um yeah so but at the same time i was too much of a coward to immediately go for that as my undergrad so i i did something else for for my undergrad uh, I did heritage management, which included archaeology and building conservation. So I went a different route. And then it was only later that I had the confidence to go, you know, all in and go, actually, no, museums is where it's at for me and I want to work with objects. So, Chloe, how, how did you get to, how did you find conservation? Uh, it was through, I think I knew about it as a concept, but I was, um, I was sort of stuck on the idea of doing academic archaeology for years. Um, and then mm. I hit a point mid, mid study, mid MA archaeology where I realized that I didn't want to be staring at a computer screen all my life. And almost immediately I thought of what I'd heard of the Cardiff Conservation course. And almost immediately to that, I'm pretty sure I called Jane and said, so what's this? Is there an open day? I'll go to it. And then I think two weeks later, I was set to do my degree. Um, but I'm wondering whether this route is different for people who, um, are more, more set towards the specialisms because Cardiff's course is, is very broad. It's generally objects, whereas the, there are other courses, of course. I was just thinking, obviously, each institution has a slightly different rep in terms of what they do. It, it's, yeah. it, they have slightly different identities, I think, but they're all probably pretty broad, actually, unless it's a specialist course. Do you get people calling you, Jane, asking about the different specialisms and, and different options for study? Or is it mainly people saying, I want to come to Cardiff? No, you get, sorry, I get a lot of emails from people and they sort of say what they're interested in. And um, obviously, (laughs) we try to recruit people to our course, but if it's clear that really they want to be a painting conservator, then I will say, have you also looked at these universities? (laughs) Uh, Okay. (laughs) You've done a fine art degree, you've done a master's in art appreciation or whatever. Are you sure it's not, you know, works of art on canvas that you want to conserve? (laughs) So, (laughs) just to be sure... (laughs) And the same with textiles. If someone's interested in textiles, I'll suggest Glasgow to them because it's better to specialise. I don't tend to get people asking about paper conservation. I think people tend to find their way to the paper conservation courses themselves. Maybe they're easier to find. Uh, yeah, that's, I don't a, know. that's an interesting one because I kind of feel like I kind of feel like, and I could be wrong about this, so I apologise to all paper and book conservators. But I feel like there's almost a more established kind of tribal identity for them so they they tend to find each other and they find the people who might be interested in it and they go and this is how you get into it as for the rest of conservation is a bit more yeah you'll figure it out <laughs> maybe they more like to volunteer in an archive and therefore more yeah. likely to get straight to the right 
page. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, the icon website is really actually very good in terms of helping people find their identity, and I do get quite a lot of people who've been in touch with icon more so recently oh good and that seems to be nice to sort of helping them not choose a course but you know steer them through the different courses yeah i, mm-hmm. I feel like icon has, has done a good job of being a bit more user-friendly like that uh, not user-friendly but more it's almost like they have more customer service now which sounds also weird but you know they're, they're a bit more approachable now i feel so should we carry on with uh, our experiences christina how did you find conservation just begin uh- your learning I <laughs> okay so briefly um I started doing a degree in English literature and then after a couple of years I switched to philosophy uh which was in retrospect a massive mistake but I won't go into that um and uh I did an MPhil and realized quite quickly that I really really didn't want to do a PhD in philosophy so then I kind of overreacted and went the other way and started work uh, training as a chartered accountant and auditor for one of the big big four firms in the city now that's a way of acting out that I've never heard of before (laughs) yeah Um, and then uh, after a year of that I also realized I really, really didn't want to spend the rest of my life in a city. Um, and uh, what broke me was spending six weeks on an industrial estate in Peterborough auditing Hot Point. Um, wow. So I left and I kind of thought, what can I do that's basically the opposite of this? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't want to work in an office. Um, particularly, um, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of work in the corporate world. I'm, I feel more comfortable in the sort of, um, I guess kind of broader. I, I looked at charities. I looked at the cultural sector, that kind of thing. And quite quickly, I found archives and, um, sort of training for being an archivist. That, that was where I kind of landed. I thought, well, what do I like? I love books. Uh, wouldn't it be awesome to spend the rest of my life hanging out in a library? Um, and so I found out about li- – uh, I looked at library training, archives training, and then I found out about paper conservation. So actually, mm-hmm. you're right. That is one of the things that's quite prominent, um, I think, because if you look at archives stuff, then you quite quickly find out about the existence of paper conservators. And then I thought, well, paper looks a bit kind of boring and two-dimensional. So um, I initially wanted to do uh, – to be a textiles conservator. But I also didn't want to move to Southampton, uh, which was where the Textiles Conservation Centre was based at the time. So I thought, well, objects conservation sounds equally interesting and also really varied. And um, so I contacted UCL, uh, the Institute of Archaeology. Um, and it was quite late in the day. It was like August or something. But I basically rang up Cliff Price and he was like, yeah, come in tomorrow. <laughs> so, oh, <wow. laughs> so I went and had a chat with Cliff um, and he gave me various objects and asked me what I thought about them. And, you know, um, it was a very sort of low key interview in a way. Um, I was worried that I didn't have A-level chemistry, but he was OK about that as well. But anyway, I, I ended up doing the MA course and then the msc course at ucl nice but uh yes that that was all rather rambling but not not a very straightforward route no. and, and a lot of it was just kind of in reaction to other things <laughs> yeah but uh, like we were saying not everyone finds it straight away so it's it, you know loads of people will kind of try different things and then go that's not for me and then they'll find yeah. that conservation exists i do i do also kind of feel that having a background in philosophy for example is it is an advantage in some ways it is it's a well it's a strength put it that way it's it is something that i can continue to use whatever your background is it will help you as a conservative yes so yes. regardless of what that is there will be a place for yeah. it uh that's the kind of wonderful thing right where it's like i feel like it's a it's a superpower of mine that, uh, you know, I know a bit about archaeology. I know a bit about buildings. I've also done a bit of a um, diploma thing in like heritage learning and stuff like that. So I like, you know, it's, I've, I've got loads that I can draw in upon. Your toolkit. Yes. Yeah. And it might be that nobody else has that exact combination of tools, which is awesome. That's your superpower. So if you're out there and you're like, oh, I'm not sure if I can be a conservator just because before I've been an accountant, you will be absolutely fine. Um, yeah, unfortunately, you'll also end up being treasurer of Icon Archaeology. <laughs> yeah, okay, yes, that's true. Never <laughs> ever join a committee. <laughs> Which was very rewarding, I hasten to add. But, you know, um, Jane, I'd be really interested to know, actually, how you got into conservation. I am in the embarrassing atypical one. I yeah. thought 
when I was tiny, when I was in primary school, I saw someone unwrapping a mummy and I pronounced to the world, I'm going to do that. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I've never changed my mind. Oh, oh that's great. That's so cute. I mean, to... so I went to high school, you know, secondary school, and we had index cards in our careers thing. And obviously they didn't have what I wanted to do. So I just used to pick things at random. Um, but I was always determined. And I went to a careers interview when I was about 15. And they said, you seem to want lots of different things. And it's, I was like, no, because... The thing I want to do is never on the index card. <laughs> then they found me a careers counsellor who said to me, you want to either go to Cardiff or London, and um, or you might consider Bradford for archaeological sciences. And he was absolutely brilliant. And when I got offered a place, he actually rang me up to congratulate me. Oh, remember him. That's oh. amazing. That, that makes me think of two things. Uh, one, it's that I think an early warning sign for my parents must have been when I watched a lot of documentaries about Utsi the Iceman. <laughs> and I was really, yeah. really enamored with the entire investigative process. I think that was probably an early warning sign that this is a creepy child who, who wanted to work with dead people in some capacity. And I do. And I love it. That was a- that was exactly the sort of thing. I, it would have been that documentary. It was a different one, but it could have easily been that. And it was it. No, I want to do that. I want to do that. I used to drive my parents nuts with my unrealistic career ambitions. Yes. And that, <laughs> that, that, that just, sorry, just a quick interjection. That reminds me of career days at school were always a nightmare. Mm. If I expressed what I wanted to do in any shape or form, I might, you know, tone it down and say, maybe I want to be an archaeologist because that's something people know what it is. Because I couldn't express what, what conservator was because I didn't know it existed. So it was just an idea. But I could say, say, archaeologist, I'd like to be an archaeologist because that's something people can relate to. And then inevitably, the career the career person, who is usually a person in a cupboard in most schools across the world, <laughs> said, oh, could you scale that down a bit? Nobody becomes an archaeologist. Could you maybe do something more normal? You know, could you be an electrician? <laughs> you know, it's like, no, I want to be something weird. Yeah, be something on the index card. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I do, not conf- I do not conform to your index cards. I will not conform. No. So, Jane, when you started, after obviously you wanted to be something very specific for a long time, when you actually started your course, how did you feel about it? Did it live up to your expectations or did you think, oh, God, this is much more than I thought it was? I think, because I was quite young, because I, um, I had a Scottish education and I'd done um, a bigger diversity subject. I got to university when I was still 17. And I think I was quite taken with it leaving home but confirmation I don't know I, honestly it sounds ridiculous but I felt at home there it just felt right there was nothing so it wasn't that it was out of the ordinary it wasn't I had an it didn't it just felt like this is what I was meant to be doing and, and that's a fine answer you that's know, a that's, wonderful answer that's very good I think I like you'll probably that. find quite a lot of conservatives feeling like that if we've gone through quite a lot of different things and we've settled on this and that's because we were meant to be doing this and well meant i don't believe in destiny <laughs> or anything i'm a scientist but <laughs> as, Make far your own as, destiny, goes, as far as it goes yeah it's probably you, you can feel at home in a profession oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. exactly yeah. yeah so jane my I, uh, my question for you really is um how do, do you ask that people have um a level chemistry still or an equivalent which certainly was one of the criteria when i was applying in uh, the early noughties um, or are you more kind of uh, relaxed about that kind of thing it's really difficult because of the way that people come in different paths we've not got a rigid requirement so I ask people to submit me evidence of the highest level of science and I take it from there so quite a lot of people have a double science GCSE and that's mm-hmm. normally a good starting point but um, students from America may have done sort of chem 101, chem 102, and so on and so forth, and I can go through that. I look at chemistry for conservators. Quite a lot of people still do that. That's another great route. Mm-hmm. Um, I, sometimes I talk to people about getting an evening class, doing an AS level in chemistry. So I just, because of the divergent way that people come to conservation, having a single way, a single gateway just doesn't work. But they have to have some science. And so it's just sort of a, a process. So what... What kind of things are you looking for? Um, obviously, some sort of aptitude uh, in science or at least a, a willingness to learn the kind of bits of chemistry and material science that are relevant to conservation. Um, what else are you looking for? It, over, the, over the whole thing? Well, we have very strict rules. Admission is very rule governed. So I have to just follow the rules as advertised on the website. But personally, 
there is just a spark that comes across in an application. It just says, I am a conservative. I always think it's the, the shiny-eyed thing. It, it's just something that says, I'm driven, I'm obsessed, I know what I want to do, I've just discovered it. And, and you can almost hear people writing their personal statements that says, I did all these other things, and I've just suddenly discovered conservation, and oh my goodness, I really want to do it, and I haven't got all the right things, please, please, please take me. And you just read this in the application forms. And so some people, they've done beading or crafting. I really like it when you see something like that or make someone belly dancing costume. <laughs> Who's that? To pick an example at random. <laughs> <laughs> but it, there's always something. And that's the thing is if I said, so I kind of know, but we're not allowed to um, actually make offers on the basis of coming across as shiny. No, eyes. no, quite. <laughs> <laughs> I can always tell that someone wants to be conserved. And then if you invite people for an open day, you can just think, because we tell them all the reasons why they don't want to do it. You know, it's going to be loads of hard work. You're going to be in every day. You have to do science. You have to tackle your weaknesses. Whatever you find easy, we'll find something hard. And, you know, and then we introduce you to a student and then they leave you alone so they can tell you how hard it is. And if at the end of it, they're still going, I want it, I want it. You know, you just know. (laughs) And I think chloe remembers that day don't you i remember that day yeah and i don't think i don't think i saw i don't think i felt any of the it's going to be hard because i'd been doing at the time i was in you know the hell of an ma that i didn't i realized wasn't right for me and so i just saw all of the ways that it was going to be wonderful and all of the ways that i was going to be able to do conservation obviously but essentially use manual skills in order to get a degree which is I think in quite a lot of cases not something that people consider it's for for people who are crafty or manually skilled in some way going to university is is sort of almost entirely academic unless you choose something I, I can't even think of another example other than conservation that's a practical well fine art degrees and yeah, things well, yeah but... okay I didn't I suppose I didn't consider art. I, I know it sounds awful but because both my parents are artists and always brought me and my sister up as you're not going to do an art degree because we can give you all you want get get a degree get an academic degree I don't really consider it because <laughs> of course it's a degree it's but okay you have personal circumstances yeah, I, mean, personal you are. Circumstances, yeah. I suppose maybe conservation is a and it is a way of using an artistic and craft based mind in an academic way it is and sometimes people send me art portfolios and that's really helpful because you can just see again you know people's technical abilities and things like that Mm, that's a good point yeah i think that's one of the things that makes it quite difficult to teach i guess jane but also quite tough on the students um i know certainly i I did the two-year msc at uh, the institute of archaeology and at the time i did it they'd stuffed absolutely everything into it and it nearly broke us <laughs> i don't think there was a single Jane person in my year that, doesn't know what that's like who, surely you've never seen uh, people in that situation every time no no, no absolutely not <laughs> I, I don't think there was anyone in my year who didn't just basically um have an embarrassingly hysterical breakdown in the middle of the lab <laughs> at some point in the year but it's because um we had to fulfill all the same academic criteria as all of the other mscs that ucl taught because they they were very uncomfortable with having an academic qualification that didn't fulfill all these requirements. So we had to do exactly the same number of um, assessed essays and pieces of coursework and dissertation as as all the people doing archaeology or whatever. But on top of that, we also had lectures five mornings a week for four hours and then lab time five afternoons a week for four hours or whatever. So you kind of felt like you were in the lab full time, but then on top of that, you still had to do all the kind of same academic work as everybody else. And I think that made it a really, really tough course, just, just needing to do both sides to quite a high level the, the practical and the academic it is interesting that you say that because at some point i was talking to uh one of my friends from my previous university and they said oh how are you enjoying your new course and i said i feel like i've joined the military uh, in the, <laughs> like, I, I i have no free time i am constantly in the lab i i i don't understand when i sleep i mean it was brilliant but at the same time i think we had the same thing where you know people did have slight stress breakdowns every now and then and stuff like that but there, at the same time there's a great kind of community forming mm. in 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 these labs they, it's like a little family not everyone likes each other but at the same time you're a little family because you you can relate it's like oh i need to finish this object i don't know how and everyone's like calm down it's going to be fine talk me through what you're doing and uh, we'll 
it's, it's, it's just gonna be fine you know you're not gonna have to be here alone because you need to have two two people in the lab at the same time i'll just be in and like be here like as long as we can and uh, we'll get it sorted you know it's that that kind of support structure that kind of forms which is absolutely lovely by the way and helps to get through it <laughs> I'm interested in um, your point, Christina, about ways of assessment and following the sort of strict line, as it were, of university Mm. degrees. Because, Jane, you've looked at this in, obviously, education in a more academic way in itself, haven't you? With the way how to assess people and how to sort of tell, essentially, when, when have they both fulfilled their degree and when are they ready to be a professional conservator? And I think that's something that, as a profession, we were a little bit confused about because I don't think someone is a really adept professional until they've been doing it for six, seven, eight years, something like that. Some of which might have been before they did the degree, by all means. But I think that people, all you can ask of a graduate is that they're on a trajectory and they've got the skills to go forward and get to be a good conservator. I'm sure, you know, since you've graduated in those years, since then you've realised how much more you've learned. And as long as you leave able to do that, I think that's important. But in the two years or the three years that you have them in university, there is a limit. We, I think we take the students to the absolute limit, possibly sometimes just a little bit past. <laughs> um, <laughs> Perhaps agreed. <laughs> but, you know, we're trying to get... Um, an academic level out to students but we're also trying to get the skills level and to make those two things connect is quite a challenge in quite a short period of time so that people can do technical things but they understand theoretically why they're doing them and it's no way you're going to teach them all the theory or all the technical things in two years but you can teach them the skills skills acquisition skills if you know what I mean how do I learn to solve problems and then how do I go and get practical skills to deliver so one of the most important sort of aspects of that I guess is the internship um, the work placements that most courses still have could you sort of say a bit about that Jane? Yeah I mean I think the internships are always a really great moment for students because they've probably spent a year studying and learning and one of the things that teachers do is that whenever you you know achieve something we give you a higher challenge don't we so it's like that's great try something harder and yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you feel confident let's get, let's make it more complex whereas if you go on a placement I think that someone shows you how to do something and then asks you to repeat the same task sort of 13 times and then you realize that you can do it and you can speed up and you can get better and you can get more competent and you can then put it on display or invite school kids around or teach somebody else how to do this thing and you suddenly realize that you know you are you've got the learning you're consolidating the learning and you can you know you can do something meaningful with it I think if we had more time on the degrees, you could spend more time sort of reflecting, oh, haven't we done well? Isn't that great? You know, here we are. Let's sort of run forward with this until we're really confident with it. But I think in the degrees, we just keep pushing people on and on. Whereas for the internships, I think you get a chance to sort of expand into it, to breathe into it, to relax into it in some way that you then sort of build your confidence. The students always come back more confident from their place. And that's why we don't specify particular things that they have to do. So we say that um, whatever a conservative does is what we ask the student to do, which can be absolutely (laughs) almost anything, really. So some students might spend time doing gallery installations. Um, Stephanie has recently done a blog that's lovely about working with things that were left after the Manchester bombing and also making a heart with bees in it from the entomology collection in Bolton Museum. What an amazing experience to be collecting those memories but also to be creating something meaningful to sort of communicate with the community about the current pain and hurt and how they're feeling. I mean, if, you know, there's no specification that could say that's what you should be doing, but it's, we can totally recognise it as valuable when she does it. Absolutely. So that was one of my questions, actually, for you, Jane. Simply how much impact, how much of an impact does a student's placement have on their development as a conservator? And I think you've probably answered that um, as quite a lot. But do you think it depends? uh, Do you think it's affected by what they are asked to do? Do you find the students come back after their summer placements thinking, instead, I want to do this, or I definitely don't want to do this? (laughs) Some of them do. I don't know if I should mention by name, but I had one conservator recently so all the way through her applications and all the way through the first few weeks, I want to be a metal conservator. I want to be a metal conservator. And then on placement, she discovered natural sciences conservation. Oh. And then I want to be a natural sciences conservation. Oh, and that's very much the path that she's going down now. And I am sure she will be a brilliant natural science conservator. 
um, and will you know lead in the profession. So yes, I do see people take complete changes from their experiences. Not that often, but yes, yeah, sometimes. That's interesting. So uh, on the topic of internships, I know that you can't specify, but what makes a good internship? I think it's when the placement supervisor is open and shares as much of their daily experience. So if you, a bad one might be when you'd be put in a room and left to conserve 4,000 coins. I mean, it's not terrible (laughs) because you'll (laughs) learn a lot. Um, I think I did x-raying as a student and I did, I don't know, eight weeks of x-raying and it wasn't the most diverse experience, but I was very fast at (laughs) x-raying. But I think the best ones are the ones where the student goes with the host and perhaps visits a few sites, perhaps does some different activities, maybe doing some preventive conservation, some site monitoring, but then also does some bench work or or gets involved in the life of the museum. I suppose that's really it. It's just that real connection to what the organisation is doing. So, yeah, so maybe that's what I'm thinking. It's the organic connection with the organisation via their host rather than um, a number of specified tasks. That's good. That's a good answer. I like that. And I, I think I agree based, based on my experiences. I think that's very much what made it good, actually. I think I certainly, I, I suppose after my placement, I came back feeling definitely more like I understood the place of conservation within a museum. And then I, when I was applying to jobs and afterwards, I think definitely my placement was sort of constantly brought up because it's obviously it's the only experience you have but the richer that can be then the more helpful to your career as a in a sort of clinical way but also as your idea of how conservation is in within museums well i guess it gives you a bit of a taste of the real world whatever that real world is for for the host obviously but still which is uh good and it's grounding and it does show you that you you can tackle these things usually. I think it's a bit of a matchmaking skill as well. You're putting people together that you yeah. think will click. Yeah, I, I was absolutely desperate to go to a particular institution for my internship. And um, the person who was in charge of organising them just pretty much flatly refused to let me go there. Uh, and I was really miffed. But she said, it's not a good fit. And you won't get as much out of it as if you go somewhere else that and 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 she did explain her reasoning and so on and I kind of accepted that and in retrospect I think she's right I wouldn't have fitted in at all I would totally have been a square peg in a round hole um, if I'd gone to this place but at the time you just kind of you have an idea about what an institution is like and you want to go somewhere possibly kind of prestigious with cool objects or whatever Um, but of course the people arranging the internships have a far kind of broader view about how you'll fit in, what the institutional culture is, what the opportunities you'll get are, um, what kind of prospects you'll have afterwards. In retrospect, she was totally right, but I was really miffed at the time. (laughs) So it's quite a lot of responsibility then. Yeah, I think as a, I mean, mean, there were all kinds of, I was aware of all the sorts of practical issues behind the scenes as well, because we were at UCL and they'd expanded the number of students that they took. Um, So I think they had five or six MSc students the previous year, and then they had nine in my year, which doesn't sound like a huge increase, but then that's three more people that you've got to find placements for. And obviously, because we'd spent the previous previous two years studying in London, everybody wanted to stay in London and there just aren't that many um, internships available in London. So people had to move and so on. So there's kind of practical issues as well. That that pain Um, must be real to you, Jane. (laughs) Well, you know, because nobody's got spare cash anymore. We do often start from, uh, I've got an auntie who can put me up in this location and this is the kind of material and then I'm trying to work out (laughs) where we can go with that bedroom and those materials and their personality. And it is, and there's nothing like somebody coming back sort of just grinning from ear to ear because they learned to do soldering and, you know, you knew that they'd like it, but they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm just imagining you celebrating in your office, like close in the door and punching the air. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> They're still doing <laughs> So Jane, my other question for you is, um, are there any aspects of delivering conservation education uh, and development that you feel would be really important, but that you don't think you can deliver in a, in a university context? Are there things that you Ooh. see would be really valuable, but think, well, I just can't do it? You quite get calls from the profession saying oh we need more transferable skills students need to do accountancy and they need to do media training and they need to do that what you know lots of other things that people need manage business management skills that sort of thing 
And we try to build things like teamwork and resource planning into conservation. But I think if we start bolting on other activities separately, the way that the curriculum is, the way that we've got so many credits and so many hours, you would start to squeeze out lab time and an object time. So I think it's always a sort of um, a balancing act to show that people are learning project management or time management or those sort of things, but without setting up courses in time management. And so I think that's kind of a, a bit of a constant tension that people are saying we must see the employability skills, we must see the transferable skills. And we are saying, well, look, here they are in the lab. They're working together as a group of six people to conserve the sarcophagus. They're learning about teamwork and they're learning about leadership. We don't have to have a separate module for that. But I think that's probably what we don't teach separately, if you know what I mean. Does that answer that? Yeah, that, that really does. And I suppose that leads into the way, that, potentially the way that um, conservation is changing as a profession. That we're, if we're sort of being, if collections care is basically being whittled down and whittled down in departments, then conservators are more expected to fill different roles. So yes, we'd like you to conserve all the things and do all the exhibitions, but also you have to run social media and plan all of these things and time budget and all of this all of this stuff that you you know might not have really signed up for when you started your degree in conservation yeah i mean somebody um on our degree might make a perfect amount for an object if the object needed it but somebody else might not but they might do soldering or you know use an ankle grinder or they might do a blog and not everyone does everything yeah and I, I think sometimes a sort of the slightly unrealistic demands for this universal conservator to evolve in a mere two or three years where they just you know do half a lifetime worth of stuff it's just and I think that's sometimes a little bit unrealistic so a while ago several years ago um I sort of sat in on a uh, meeting that was organized with internship hosts um and uh, the people at the conservation course at the university. And it was kind of a discussion about what people wanted out of the internships, um, the employers on one hand and the academics on the other hand. And at the time, and this was probably 10 or 12 years ago, there was a, a kind of almost overwhelming response from the employers that they wanted people with more practical skills. They wanted people who were essentially fully-fledged bench conservators already, and they wanted the universities, a lot of people were saying they wanted the universities to basically just train people in manual skills and kind of not worry about all of the other stuff so much. Um, but at the same time, the universities felt that they, they were wanting to kind of give a broader conservation education and cover all of the scientific stuff, but also professional skills and so on. And there was this kind of slight tension here. And I'm just wondering kind of what you what you see as the point of doing a degree in conservation, I guess. Is it is it to make people more employable or is it to give some kind of conservation education that's that's kind of slightly separate from that? Well, I think all education should be, you know, educationally valid on its on itself, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. I think that everyone who's got a degree, they don't have to be conservative at the end of that, but they should have, you know, a master's level of education from a muscle group university. So I don't think we can compromise. We can't say, well, just you really want to do, I don't know, something. you really want to do plastics, so just stay and do plastics and do nothing else and just really sort of concentrate on one thing. We would always still encourage people to be broad so mm. I think that you could spend six weeks doing gilding and get better and better and better at gilding and that's a perfectly valid form of training but I don't think that that would be appropriately balanced in a university education for example mm. so there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't go and do a week's training on um Thing, you know, making stained glass. So, you know, somebody's gone off and done that for a week or two weeks. Or um, I'm trying to remember the name of that um, Japanese ceramics restoration where you used the gold kintsugi. Uh, kintsugi, yeah. Kintsugi, yeah. So someone's gone off and done a couple of weeks on that, and that's absolutely fabulous. But I wouldn't put that into the degree for everyone because it's not for everyone to, who wants to do, you know, their time on that. So I think employers, Phil and I, Phil Parks and I did do a survey of employers about what they wanted from students, but we, we made it difficult for them by constructing the survey in such a way that they had to choose between things, so they had to choose relative priorities. Mm. <laughs> you can't have everything. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. <laughs> because, because you can't get a quarter into a pine pot. And it's still practical skills. That's still number one. That's still what people want. Mm. That's good. That's good to know. And, you know, that's why a third of every year is, is purely on that. But, it, you know, assessing that within 
stricter and stricter university regulations. It's not impossible, but it's a challenge because, you know, our university now wants sort of standardised forms of assessment, which is understandable from a student equity point of view. But we've then got to translate that into what that means in conservation. I guess there's also an issue here about um, who should bear the responsibility for education as well, um, because understandably employers want people who are just kind of straight employable straight away um, from the degree courses and I guess the internships help bridge that gap to some extent but um, I guess employers also ought to be taking some responsibility themselves for the continuing education of new graduates and being willing to support their learning and development in the early stages. You can't just ask universities to do all of that and say that the employers themselves don't have any responsibility, I think. I think that's a real problem that sometimes employers don't really want to be the first job. They don't really want to be Mm. that first one because it's quite a lot of pressure and you would have to maybe, maybe, you know, uh, actually pay for a little bit of training or... You, you, or you have to uh, put in the extra hours of a little bit extra supervision until someone gets comfortable. And most of the time, employers do kind of want it to be convenient. And then it's always more convenient to go with someone who already has more experience, which is a real bummer when you're trying to get your first job. Well, I think this is, I mean, this is one of the big challenges, isn't it? Is that in, we're seeing now with jobs, the first jobs, they're looking for 18 months of experience um, and a degree. But who's offering the job for a degree and no experience? And we're finding, I think, more and more graduates spending time interning and volunteering for nothing, which I think has, I know you've discussed it already, but has real issues for the diversity of the profession. Yeah, definitely. Um, and access routes into it. So, you know, I think there are plenty of jobs. When I, when I graduated from my undergraduate degree, I was not nearly as good as the people who are graduating now, but I still got a job because... The nature of the economy was different. I had less experience than everyone who's graduating now has. I mean, I had different experience, but it wasn't conservation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> no, lesson there, life is unfair. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is a bit. So I think that, you know, I think the demand for people to leave work ready is very reasonable. They should be able to do a job. But I suppose it depends what people mean by work ready. Mm, yeah. I kind of want to go back to this idea of sort of academic study again, Jane, mm-hmm. and ask about people who go on to do conservation research, which is obviously also education, but in a rather less kind of vocational way. Um, and sort of, you know, where you see the place of conservation research as being because obviously some people do go on to do PhDs, for example. Not quite sure what my question is. <laughs> well, I, I think, I think for you, Except I think it's something we haven't really talked about. Yeah. It's not all just about training people to be conservators. It is also an academic subject in its own right. It is. And if you train people to ask and answer questions or to, to deal with problems and realise problems, then that means they can be either bench conservators or presenters conservators or researchers. Because if you're problem is, you know, what to do with this large ship in the docks of Bristol um, that we need to keep dry, <laughs> then you can, <laughs> not talking about anyone in particular, then you can go and find out about the iron corrosion mechanism, that particular combination of ions and chlorides of that particular ship, and you can spend three years finding out what the optimum setting for the air conditioning is. And that's absolutely intrinsic to conservation. We need people who answer those questions. So, you know, Johanna at the moment, looking at Tupperware boxes, if you think how much archaeology survival depends on the air tightness or otherwise or the permeability of, um, you know, plastic boxes, then for someone to be to answering those questions and looking at the new materials and the lock and locks and comparing to the stewards that we used to use and all those questions, still asking and answering questions, it's just that they're perhaps focusing in more detail on one specific question, whereas other conservatives might have to ask and answer a question, put together a solution in three weeks and then move on. It seems to me a lot of the research that's being carried out or supported at the moment, though, is very kind of science focused. And there has been hugely increased funding over the last few years for heritage science. In fact, heritage science has become a thing and is recognised as a thing now. Um, But I suppose I'm I'm wondering about other aspects of conservation as well, either research into other practical treatments um, or the more kind of um, soft end, if you like, stuff that's to do with ethics, for example, or conservation history. Or it, it seems that that's not quite as well supported. 
I think there is more money for heritage science at the moment, and I think that's a lot down to success of people like Naked Star, who's really spent a lifetime trying to win that funding. So mm. I suppose what we could say is we've got a great success in heritage science. Let's look at that and look at what lessons we can learn for other things, for other aspects of conservation, where perhaps we haven't gone out and campaigned for funding. But I think that asking people to live for nothing for three years doing a PhD is a, is a big ask and so obviously if you do want to do it then going for a doctoral you know for, a, for something which has got funding is going to be something which is going to be more attractive to most people. How useful do you think it is for conservators to have a PhD? Um, as you said some people do go into research but there aren't actually that many conservation research jobs so a lot of people might go and do a PhD but then go back into more practical conservation um, do you think it's it's something worth doing is it does it um, enhance your career prospects in any way you know I don't have any data on whether it enhances your career prospects but I suspect that it does I mean I am a bit locked into academia so you perhaps guys are, um, <laughs> <laughs> are better able to qualify but I think again it comes down to what questions you ask I mean it's, I'm thinking of the, the PhD students around me at Cardiff because they were the ones that come to mind first so um, we have Sam who's looking at um, fires in historic houses so you know real fires that you use to keep the rooms warm as opposed to the ones you don't want that burn the building down (laughs) thank you for clarifying (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) and so he's going to look at a whole range of factors in terms of the impact on the environment but i see that as intensely practical that at the end of that Mm. he can still be you know really valuable member of the conservation community contributing to an understanding of you know traditional heating so if you look at sort of the work in Copenhagen where they, um, the Danish people have done quite a lot of research on indoor air quality and um, con- you know, environmental control and passive buildings, I still think that although they may have spent three years digging deep into one specific aspect, they still come out of it and give us the, the answers in terms of how can we create a stable building with less energy that the rest of us can then take forward. And you don't necessarily then have to go into a research job, but people might, some might go into consultancy, might become sort of experts in their own things. Some people might take leadership roles in organisations. So I'd like to say something about craft skills, which is a big topic in conservation. Do you think, you three have all talked about feeling stressed and overworked. Do you think that in your conservation education, craft skills were not prioritised? Oh, um, yes. Um, okay, so I feel like I probably didn't necessarily learn anything new like that but it was very useful that I already had those skills so background for me is I've got extremely creative ADHD parents which has also contaminated me so I already had a lot of uh, these odd craft skills uh, and they were extremely useful but I don't know that they were taught necessarily the craft skills that I my craft skills mainly revolve around sewing more so than anything else now. Um, and I think I sort of approached, I think I started off by saying I am very interested in textiles. So I think I led my way into using those craft skills and then they were very valuable. You know, the fact that I knew how to use a needle and thread and I had the dexterity, the fine dexterity, all of that sort of thing. I think I kind of made them relevant because that was my interest. I suppose there were instances where my experiences of painting were useful in in um, in painting and stuff, but I I suppose I didn't really use them. Per- I helped others, but I didn't use them personally on my own objects just ah, because but that I means didn't that you do taught in other painting. People. You taught other people then, well, which is I, I, it was just more like oh yeah, you mix this with this. I don't I don't know if oh, it was about teaching. teaching, but yeah. I suppose it was. I suppose it, the people with craft skills. If the more of people, the more students with craft skills, kind of adds to a kind of richness and variety of experience and student-led support within degrees Hmm. does that answer your question i feel like you put us on the spot we we supposed to put you on the spot yeah we were squirming (laughs) i think that people are asking a lot about how we you know are are we teaching enough craft skills in conservation and i just wonder what it seems like from a sort of a a student to be taught craft skills because it was really interesting that chloe was saying oh well i showed someone else how to do this but that doesn't really count and i wonder if we fail to recognize when we are being shown those things because you don't teach craft skills by having a powerpoint do you (laughs) i also think though that it's quite hard to teach craft skills i mean it's something you teach yourself by 
doing it again and again and again and again. And I think one of the things that's difficult is finding enough time in a conservation degree to do the sheer amount of repetition and experience that you need to kind of really master a particular craft skill. And so I guess the people teaching these courses, they can they can give you the tools to understand what you need to do and to learn it and to have a first go and so on. But ultimately, you're not really going to learn that until you've just done it loads of times and, and learned yourself from experience and, and had that kind of feedback of, well, okay, this didn't work quite so well this time, so I'm going to try doing this next time. Because I'm really interested in this guy called Michael, like Sixpack Michali, who talks about flow, and I think it's such an important thing for conservation. And he's, he talks about chess players and mountain climbers and how they get better and better at things and that their learning isn't just sort of intellectual but experiential mm. and that... Um, for flow experiences to be successful, it's what Christina said, they've got to have feedback, they've got to be positive, but they've got to have an increasing challenge and you've got to have a situation where you can do something, but it's challenging and you've got all the sort of context in which you can achieve that challenge and then you go forward and do that challenge and then you do the next one and you get so absorbed in the challenge that you're almost unaware of what's going on around you. And I think a lot of conservation courses can create that environment and people might not recognise that as teaching, but that it is teaching. Yeah, that's mm. an interesting one. I recently did um, uh, was involved in a Happy Museum training day at the my place of work, uh, which we don't talk about, of course, because they're the rules. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to become increasingly right. difficult, I think. Um, so first rule of the C word is don't talk about. Oh no, sorry. Don't, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> don't mention your employer's by name. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, well, well, you're, well you're, you're you're an obvious exception. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I think it's just us. It's the 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 three that uh, are more at risk of speaking potential things that we shouldn't speak. Anyway, um, <laughs> of which we have many stories. So many stories. So happy museum training. The, the Happy Museum brings that idea of flow into it. Um, and I think they, they actually mentioned this, the same, the same person, the same study as a source of well-being, essentially. Um, I think I'm of the mind that I'm actually more interested in the idea of learn, flow as learning and flow as, as, um, sort of increasing the efficiency of, of learning and increasing skills. But I don't know how that would, how, that that's all about dedicating time isn't it so how could you put that into a degree course where everything is timed and everything is on a timer basically there's do you think maybe would you want to see more time for people to play so sewing sewing afternoons or painting afternoons where people just had a had a chance to make a mess because that's essentially how I learned to paint and to sew is I just made a lot of mistakes and you can't really do that on objects because that's unethical <laughs> i think mistakes was one of the things i wrote down as something we should talk about because mistakes are only problematical you know if you don't learn from them and if people are frightened of mistakes then they really it's a barrier to learning oh that's um, that's an interesting one because it's one of my favorite questions to be asked by people who learn what i do as soon as they know that i work on historical objects the most immediate question that comes to mind is, aren't you very afraid of making a mistake? Or what happens when you make a mistake? Uh, so it's either a mistake or when you break something. Uh, and it's it's something that people get quite quite uh, giddy about, really. I mean, if you have a dinner conversation with someone, they, they get really excited about the notion that you will have screwed something up, <laughs> uh, which is really sweet uh, and so human. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, but yeah that's, one of, yeah, that's definitely one of the questions that I get asked a lot. But I think the thing with mistakes is that if people, um, it, it's a feature of learning. And you know, um, icons, novice to experts, expert scale is all based on Dreyfus and Dreyfus's idea. Um, and he has so many interesting ideas to help us sort of understand learning and stages of learning. But a novice is someone, according to him, who doesn't who doesn't accept responsibility for the mistakes. So, you know, if something goes wrong, they say, well, I followed your instructions. And a feature of increasing expertise is actually what you how you respond to things going wrong. And so a real expert is not someone who doesn't make mistakes, not just judged by that, it's by the speed at which you respond. So it's the tiniest sign that something is going wrong that you respond to. You know that feeling when you're taking a scalpel over a surface and something feels wrong? Yeah. yeah. And you just lift it off? That's expertise. That's what you know. 
something's changed, perhaps that the object isn't quite what you expected. There's another feature in there that you hadn't seen, or the texture change that suggests that there's something in there. And that's expertise. It's the speed by which you stop, think, right, that's not what I was expecting. What do I do now? How do I reevaluate? And it's not that you don't make the mistake. It's the scale of the mistake that matters. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. That's good. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So would you say then that, well, obviously more time is not something that we can actually give to students in a two-year degree or three-year degree, but more time to mess about, really? Is that, would you think that would be... It depends where you are. If you are, um, oh, I can say some names, can't I? So if you're Kieran and I'm... <laughs> Hi, and Kieran. You're sewing for the, sorry, Kieran. And you're so far away, you can't get it. And I'm showing you how to use a sewing <laughs> You've never used a sewing machine, and I'm showing you how to do that the first time. And there's no way I'm going to have you, you know, sew an object with that machine. So he's going to need time to learn to do it. And fair play to me, sat down and learn how to do a sewing machine. He was making a mount, I think, for some chain mail at the time. But if you say, Chloe, and you're doing some sewing, then what I'm going to try and do is give you something really difficult to do you will really have to engage with and sort of go into that almost zen-like state in order to do it well. So the messing around time depends on what your level of expertise is for that particular skill set at the beginning. And it's all, I think a lot of teaching craft skills is about giving people the right challenge and they may not recognise that they're being taught because they think they're learning it themselves, but it's about setting up a situation where you can learn. Mm, Yeah, I'm kind of with you on that, actually. Yeah, that sounds like a... A very nice approach. It probably won't feel nice for the student at the time, but it is a nice approach. (laughs) Well, I think that's the thing is that we're always pushing you up the next step up. And there are these horrible moments being a student uh, of anything, I think. But you know the bit when you start and it's all, yay, yay, I'm here. It's lovely. Look at all the things. Oh, my goodness. They give me a Roman coin. (gasps) And then suddenly you suddenly realize all the things you don't know. And that's a real low. And I think that, you know, the known unknowns is a low for everyone. And then there's another phase just before I think people get it, where people are just thinking, will this never end? Will it always be questions? <laughs> no, it won't end. It will never end. It will always be questions. <laughs> But then suddenly you see how to solve the questions and it suddenly becomes clear what your route to doing conservation is. And, you know, I think most students get that. At some point just before the end, they suddenly see the pathway. They stop looking for answers and they start looking for routes. And as soon as they get that, it just all suddenly falls into place. That's beautiful. That makes <laughs> that, that warms my heart. I like that very much. Thank you. Yeah. Do you, you recognise that? Yes. <laughs> I think that's, that's, I do. that's kind of a nice note to end on. Thank you very much. And uh, you'll hear more from Jane uh, later in our Dear Jane section. <laughs> a new feature <laughs> yes, that we're new, quite excited about. A new feature that you will love. And uh, now we're going to listen to a review from Chloe. So I'm going to be reviewing The Conservation of Featherwork from Central and South America, edited by Ellen Perlstein. Following a concise summary introduction by Judith Levinson is the first chapter, an introduction to the examination and documentation and conservation of featherwork. This chapter presents the necessary considerations and methods to use as as a conservator working with feathers and outlines the purpose of the book. The use of the methodology developed by Ellen Perlstein in this and the second chapter is presented by six students in six case studies in the rest of the book. So instead of simply a book of separate essays on the treatment of feathers, they each use the same process to demonstrate its value to the conservation community. As I'm not a specialised feather or ethnography conservator, I can't comment on the methodology in the field. I don't know if this is how it's always done or whether this is a new process. From the perspective of a non-specialist, however, I can say that I found this book very exciting. It covers physical features of coloration, modification, preventative and interventive conservation, and also the legality issues of supply and transit of certain types of feathers, species of feathers, etc. And it does this in a thoughtful and thorough manner throughout the book. Highly important in the conservation of cultural material are the ethical considerations and requirements affecting the handling, treatment and display of feathers, and these considerations are central to the process and purpose of the book. So what is the process presented here? It's simply a recording process encouraging the complete assessment and recording of all feathers 
of a feathered object, with the age and species of the bird used as important as the presence of insect damage or the process of manufacture. This is supposed to be an even-handed review, so I'm going to assess the conservation of featherwork against three criteria. The scope of, fo- of coverage, so the identification, species, condition, conservation treatments, etc. presented in the book. The level of detail, is it reproducible? Are the conservation treatments reproducible? And as a quick reference book for a lab or studio. So the scope. The scope is vast, as I've mentioned, extremely well researched and thoroughly considered. Uh, And this means that, as far as I can tell, this book can act as an instruction manual for working with feathered objects to make sure that nothing is missed in documentation and to provide an overview of treatment literature. It's very, very well referenced um, and with very current pieces of research of identification, scientific analysis and conservation treatments of feathers. For the level of detail, as I said, there is a huge level of detail given in order to be able to repeat the process. And part of the purpose of the book is to demonstrate a a repeatable process. In terms of conservation technique, this is not a manual. You're not going to open it and find all the answers for your conservation needs. You will find a wealth of references for other recent research and technique development, but you're not going to find instructions on how to do something or all of the possible ways of approaching an object in the conservation. As a quick reference book, as I said, this is not a manual, so you wouldn't be using it to tell you what conservation treatment to do or use, but it does provide many examples of studies, prevents many options, and most importantly, demonstrates how to approach the documentation and conservation of feathered objects so that you will be able to think, research, and develop a treatment specifically appropriate to your situation rather than just having uh, an overview conservation treatment. So in sum, it's lovely, thoughtful and informative. It's a beautifully produced book. The descriptions are generously referenced and the case studies are fascinating. It also has beautiful pictures and wonderful examples throughout. Uh, And generally, I'm a very big fan. It was a beautiful read. It was published by Archetype Publications in 2017 and can be bought at www.archetype.co.uk available at a price of £29.50. As a side note, I'd like to quickly just ramble excitedly about one of the um, example conservation treatments that blew my mind. And it's probably something that everybody's heard of before, but I have never heard of splinting with a fibre of adhesive. What? That's insane. I've ne- That's amazing. I have to try this immediately. Anyway, thank you for listening. And now for some comments, questions and corrections. As always, we love hearing from you. So if you've got any comments, uh, questions or corrections, please let us know. I was just going to read out uh, a lovely comment that we got on our demographics episode. I'm going to read out large portions of this, uh, which I hope is all right with the person who sent it to us. Hello from sunny California. First, some context to go with your demographic analysis. My wife and I operate an independent practice in California. This is her third career. She has an undergrad uh, degree in graphic design, was trained for paintings conservation in Florence, and is highly creative with top-notch hand skills. She is, however, not white and has no learning disabilities. I'm white with some disabilities, but I don't really touch the artwork, so it doesn't count. Demographics in the US are curious. While women appear to be dominant in practice at least among conservatives who attend the AIC conference, the royalty in the field tend to be predominantly male. Another characteristic that's interesting is that it seems to be difficult to convince the seasoned professionals to retire or at least shift to mentoring uh, to new graduates, etc., to make room for new blood. I swear these folks are going to die with a spatula in one hand and a swab in the other. (laughs) This is the most brilliant uh, comment I think we've received so far. Thank you so much for writing in. The institutional jobs are generally impossible to get without an advanced degree. 
and there aren't many postgrad programs in the country, particularly on the west coast. There is definite bias among professionals uh, for those who come from uh, who come out of these programs, to the extent that uh, periodic efforts to establish uh, credentialing standards automatically assume that institutional education will be a requirement without any regard for experience, especially expertise in independent practice. Now that's an that's an interesting one, and it ties in quite well to what we were talking about today. Um, that there should be different routes into conservation. At the same time, institutions are frequently turned into contract conservation instead of full-time staff. Now, that's an interesting one. This all creates a system that makes it nearly impossible to enter the field. Much wailing and gnashing of teeth about this on LinkedIn. And this is also why no one is starting new postgraduate programs in the US. Uh, With a glut of stymied emerging professionals, who wants to train more? A side note on disabilities, I thought it was interesting that you hinted that certain disabilities might actually be beneficial to conservation practice. Our practice is centred in Silicon Valley, uh, where those with, uh, were on the less severe end of autism spectrum can thrive and in fact become darlings in technological fields. There is clearly a link between autism and technical hyperproficiency. Uh, now that's, those are all really interesting points, I thought. Now I can't personally comment on the uh, autism link, although to be fair, the people I know with autism are, who are on the spectrum in some degree tend to be incredibly skilled uh, in one thing or another. But then that's that's just my crowd. I can't really speak of, uh, you know, speak on, yeah, I, I can't make more general statements than that. Uh, but there might be something to that. Who knows? Yeah, some really, really interesting comments there. Mm. Um, I found it very interesting that the demographics of female-dominated workforce but male-dominated hierarchy, essentially. Is- yeah is very interesting as a, as a point, and I haven't really considered it in this country at all. Although it, it is interesting, because if you do see uh, senior conservatives, then I feel like there's, there's kind of a high proportion of men, actually. But it could be that it's just in certain specialities. But it's, yeah, that's true, yeah. It's an interesting one, and I loved hearing uh, from an, an American listener uh, who could... Absolutely, who could, thank who you could, so much for that. Yeah. Who could give us more of a, a rounded kind of uh, glimpse into uh, the conservation world across the pond? So, thank you so much for writing thank in. Thank you. That was really interesting. That's a really interesting point. Um, yeah, uh, if anyone wants to respond to that in any way, you know, tweet us, uh, email us, the usual thing. Uh, thanks so much for writing in. Thanks for listening. We're the C Word, and you've been listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jane Mathiason. Special thanks to Jane Henderson. Join us next time for an episode about freelancing. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by DD Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production.